Today we close out our time in Mark. We began this in Christmas of 2019. Just to think back, like, to the world of 2019. What was your, like, biggest problem in 2019? Like, mine was, I, I don't even, like, what to wear. Like, now I'm like, I don't even know, like, what mask to wear. The, these, we have been through the Mark's gospel since Christmas of 2019. Altogether, I went back and counted this week, 45 weeks moving through the 16 chapters of this gospel. We began with uh, that Christmas in 2019 of introducing Jesus, looking at his identity in his name of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Then we kicked off the year with following Jesus, looking at discipleship and what it means to be a follower of him. We then went into being with Jesus and the practice of silence and solitude. And then COVID hit, and so we did a series called Entering the Tension, where we looked at the kingdom parables of Jesus. And then the fall, Discovering Jesus, where we looked at his transfiguration and his power and these miracles about who he is. And then here in 2021, we've been in enthroning Jesus, looking at his cross as the paradoxical, the upside-down enthronement of the king of creation, Jesus. Now, as we finish out today, some of you are asking, what's next? Where do we go from here? Next week... We will be beginning a 12-week series in the letter, of, uh, letter to the Ephesians in a series that we're calling Collective Again, acknowledging that over the past year, we have been but haven't been collective in the same way that you have and haven't been yourself. Social isolation moving through a pandemic brings specific constraints and differences from your normal way of being. And so for many of us, as we're coming out of the cave of 2020, we're asking those kind of questions of who am I and, and what is my life like moving out of this? In the same way, we're going to be doing the same thing of asking that question, what is the church? Or more specifically, what is, who is collective? We'll be doing this with Ephesians because this letter, as we'll see, the main big idea of the letter to the Ephesians is collective again. That is, in some sense, Paul's understanding of the gospel. Those people who have been separated being collective, united again, and, and uh, those separated from God being united once again to him. So collective again, that's going to be kicking off next week. I cannot wait, and I hope you'll join us. But we've got one final week in Mark. So I'm going to pray for our time together. Uh, if you want to turn or tap in your Bibles to Mark 16, verse 9, I'm going to pray, and then we'll read through our text together. And so, Father, we thank you for another week and one last week here with Mark's gospel. Uh, I'm uh, a bit emotional about ending it here and um, just finishing out uh, this series and, and this book that I've just fallen in love with over the past year and some weeks. And so, Father, I pray that as we close this out today, that you would help us to see that all that we've spent our time on over uh, the past 45 weeks is actually a reliable testimony to the person of Jesus Christ and to what it means to be his people. Be with us, we pray. Amen. Mark 16, beginning in verse 9, but actually beginning in the little italics sentence right before verse 9. Your Bibles should have there, uh, right before verse 9, something that says something to this effect. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And now verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe her. After these things, he appeared in another form uh, to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. 
because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Snakes, poison, not in the earliest manuscripts, oh my. And as strange as the snakes and the poisons may be, maybe at least for me, the scariest thing in the text is that bracketed sentence we began with, not in the earliest manuscripts. This brings into, at least for me, questions about the reliability, the story of what is this book that I've just spent 45 weeks reading? Not in the earliest manuscripts. What else wasn't in the earliest manuscripts? What else has been included or left out of this book as it's fallen before me today? This is especially scary for those of us who believe in this Bible, who trust and find this thing as a source of of not only truth, but even authority in my life. I'm basing my whole life on this thing, not in the earliest manuscripts. What are you talking about? Today we're going to be examining, this is actually a whole teaching on just that bracketed sentence. What in the world does that mean? And what does that mean about the reliability of this book and how it stands before me today? And so, three guiding questions for our time today and what we're going to be looking at. The first is this. How did we get Mark, Mark's gospel? Can we trust this book as a reliable source of the life, the teachings, and even the resurrection of Jesus? How did we get Mark? The second question, why did this longer ending get added? And then the third question, why was there a shorter ending to begin with? Why did it just end with verse 8, with these women being terrified, the end? So, can we trust this thing? Why was this longer ending added, not in the earliest manuscripts? And why did the original one end so quickly? That's what we're looking at today. Now, I'm just going to say, this is going to be a totally different than normal teachings, than what you've, you normally experience when you're here with us today. But I truly think that this is a valuable, necessary thing, before we move on from Mark's gospel, to ask the question, was any of this thing genuinely reliable? Is this worth basing and building my life off of? Yes, maybe I have emotional feelings about the experience of forgiveness and the grace of God and some personal subjective experience, but any religion can have that. Any person can find that. You eat enough mushrooms, you can have any experience you want. What separates this book from anything else and from being more than just my personal feelings? That's what we're looking at today. Now, these are questions about the reliability of the Bible, about manuscript preservation and transmission, about historical studies, and I love this stuff. So maybe that's part of why we're doing this today, is this is just going to be me getting to geek out with everybody. If you don't believe me, you can just ask my wife, Erin, who's here. When, in 2017, I uh, had her jump in the car with me and actually brought another friend with us for the drive to San Francisco and back in one day just to attend a two-hour lecture on the topic of this. We drove in, we're like in San Francisco, all the great food, and I'm like, we have to go to this lecture about how we got the Bible and manuscript transmission and the compilation of the Tanakh, all stuff that you don't care about. But for me, it was like, this was my birthday present. And then a year later in 2018, we did a date night where we went and got ramen, and then we went and saw a documentary on this topic, uh, narrated by, of all people, uh, John Rhys Davies, uh, Gimli. 
Um, so if you ever want to see that documentary, um, actually, I'm going to link to both of those. The lecture that we went to and that documentary are available for free now. Um, and so uh, keep an eye on Collective's Instagram if you want to continue down the rabbit hole with me uh, after today. But let's get back to those original three questions. How do we get Mark? Why the longer ending? Why the original short one? First, how did we get Mark? How did you get the book as it stands right here before you today? The first step is what was referred to as the autograph, not like the signing of your name, but the original authored version of the book. John Mark's hand, sitting down, pen to paper or papyrus, and writing this out. This is the original step. But the question is, what was the motivation behind these documents? If you have your Bible open, look at the very first verse of Luke's gospel, a, a, um, a contemporary of Mark. He opens it saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers that now Luke says, I'm going to be pulling together my own compilation of the narrative. The Gospels, the autographed versions of what we have here began as a compiled narrative of the eyewitness testimonies to everything that had been accomplished through the person and work of Jesus. And so Luke identifies the gospel as a compilation, there's that word again, of eyewitness testimonies. And as he it says at the beginning in verse 1, as many have undertaken to do this, the many that he's talking about there is, is Mark. We know this because Luke quotes extensively from Mark's gospel. Luke's gospel is basically him taking Mark and just like remixing, adding his own little details and filling it out a little bit more. And so he sees Mark as doing that same work, compiling, bringing together these eyewitness testimonies and stories of the teachings and the ministry and the healings, the resurrection of Jesus, and then stitching them together. One of the best analogies to consider is, is like a family quilt. We have all of these little textiles that have been brought together over the years and made by grandma and aunts and uncles, right? And then they get all brought together and stitched together to make one big family quilt. The Gospels are this family quilt of eyewitness testimonies. You've got Mary and the women who were there at the resurrection and then at the cross. You've got Peter and his calling, right? You've got the disciples on the transfiguration, and they all bring it to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and stitch those all together, and there you have the quilt that is the Gospels, this compilation of the eyewitness accounts. Mark, who we've been with for the past 45 weeks, we know through not only little hints in his Gospel that he was pulling from Peter, the Apostle Peter, that that was the main kind of resource that he was pulling from as he was stitching together his gospel. We know this not just because Mark details it, but even in the first century, the first hundred years following the writing of Mark, all of the pastors and preachers who did letters or writings on the gospel of Mark constantly referred to it as being the eyewitness account of Peter, all stitched together and put together. So there you go. 2,000 years ago, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all sat down to pull together a compilation of the eyewitness testimonies. They wrote it out in what was referred to as the autograph. That's the first step. The second is the manuscripts. Manuscripts were copies that were made from that original autograph for the sake of the preservation of what was written in the original, and then also the spread. So obviously, if you've got one version of Mark, that's awesome for the people that live in and around that community that they can always refer back to it. But like, what about the people out in Antioch, right? 
And so what would happen would you would have these, you would hire these scribes, these copyists, who would come and word for word copy over the gospel, right, for the sake of bringing it to other communities. And then as those manuscripts or the autograph began to wear and fall apart, those copyists would very quickly move everything over before they lost and be able to transmit and move it forward. Now, the manuscript base, like the, the manuscripts that we have for our New Testament is, I, I cannot understate this, astounding in, his, in, his, in, in history. It's unlike anything else, based on two counts, their quality and their quantity. They're, look at their quantity first, because that bleeds into the quality. Quantity. How many manuscripts do you think, I'm not going to, this isn't maybe you have to answer, but how many manuscripts we have for the New Testament? In the original language, in the Greek, we have around 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. This is fragments. This may be whole New Testaments. This may be all of Mark's gospel or some other book. We have over 6, 000, around 6,000. And then when you add to that a 19,000 in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic, these other languages, altogether that gives us this, this giant New Testament manuscript base of over 24,000 documents. It's, it's huge. And we keep finding them. One of my favorite, just over a, um, 100 years ago in 1920, uh, there was this little fragment that was found in an Egyptian, like an ancient trash pile. And uh, they pulled this out, and they're looking at these, you know, archaeologists are going through this, and they re- this isn't the real one. Um, I would not have that here. This is, I told you I was a nerd. This is, my brother got this for Christmas for me. It's called, it's referred to as P52, Papyrus 52. And it was found in the trash, and they start looking at it, and they realize, oh my gosh, okay, so this is another New Testament fragment that we found, and it's specifically from John's Gospel. Uh, if you look over the language, it's, it's a fragment from John 18 on the front and back where Jesus is before Pilate. And it's specifically the conversation on whether or not Jesus is the Christ. Uh, this is the oldest fragment that we have in the New Testament. It's not much, but it's, it's in, insane to see this here. And carbon dating of P52 puts it within 29 years of the original writing of John's gospel, which means that if P52 wasn't directly copied from the autograph, that it was in circulation at the same time as the autograph. Um, it's, 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 it's astounding the kind of stuff that we have. And what's cool is we keep finding more. I told you I was a nerd about this stuff. We keep finding more. Two weeks ago, you might have seen in the news, we found two fragments of uh, Zechariah and Nahum in a Dead Sea uh, cave. They were digging around in there. They found in this cave not only uh, fragments of Zechariah and Nahum, but also the world's oldest basket, which is apparently a thing that's really exciting, a 10,000-year-old basket. They pulled out, and in the same cave, they had these fragments of Zechariah and Nahum. And what's astounding is in that quantity that keeps growing, about 6,000 in the Greek, 24,000 altogether with these other languages, is that quantity then serves as the basis for the quality that we find within those manuscripts. As textual critics, which is a fancy word for people who just, you know, basically like play, um, what was that game of like finding the difference, like spot the difference, like those pictures you did when you were a kid? They basically do that with these, these Greek manuscripts. And these textual critics go through and they compare those 6,000 Greek manuscripts and they find a, an accuracy and a consistency between them at 99%. 99%, when you compare these 6,000, they're, they're all saying the same thing. This is, in, it's absolutely insane. This is a testament not only to the great care of those copyists and scribes of what they were copying over as they were working on it, but also the proximity that these manuscripts were not hundreds of thousands of years separated, but were around one another, like with P52 at the same time, that they were able to compare and, and, and then go back and check their work. Some of you may be in like your, you know, 
opening year in college and you go to some kind of religious studies class and they talk about how the New Testament is basically this telephone game where somebody was like, Jesus is this and then the next person, Jesus is that and the next person. And then 2,000 years later, we have this whole big process. That, that's, it's ridiculous. We've had a manuscript transmission along the line that as new things were being written, they were constantly being checked off of the other manuscript base, keeping a consistency of 99%, where you can compare manuscript from a 1,000 years separated and you will find a 99% accuracy is simply astounding. It, it shows the great care of these copyists. And what's awesome is that as new manuscripts are found, it continues to solidify the quality. We keep finding 99%. It, it stays within that range as it continues and new manuscripts are found. Now, some of you get a little bit worried because you say, okay, 99%. You're a glass half empty kind of person. What about the 1%, right? So these are called textual variants. Now these variants can be everything from the difference in the spelling of a word like gadarenes or gesarenes. It can be about the word order of a sentence, which in Greek doesn't mean much for its meaning because of the way that uh, Greek is. Uh, that doesn't mean much for the meaning, but the word order would be a textual variant. A huge uh, makeup of those textual variants are the difference between saying Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ in your New Testament. That's a huge chunk of our variants in that 1%. is just something that means no, makes no difference in the reading, but is something that the scribes you know, differed on. It can be spelling differences. It can be the difference in a text between saying a pronoun versus the person's name, saying he versus Jesus, she versus Mary, where the copyist is trying to help the narrative flow a little bit better so you know who, who is what there. And then um, other textual variants will sometimes be insertions where the scribes or copyists will actually put something in the Bible for the sake of helping later readers. A great example of this is in John chapter 5, where there's this diseased man who's hanging out by this pool, and it just has Jesus walk up and kind of say, hey, what do you want? And he you know, goes on to heal him. And the whole question is, why is John telling us he's by this pool? And so then you, in John 5, 3, you have a later scribe and copyist with, you know, in parentheses, dear reader, uh, there was this belief that this pool, that an angel would come down from heaven and touch the pool, and if anyone was near the pool, they would be healed. So it sets up the context for why the pool was being talked about, which for the original readers of John, they would understand that story. You'll have little assertions like that. Sometimes you have longer ones. Now, these are only a few and far between. Uh, one of the big ones is in John 7, uh, 53, verse 811. If you've ever heard the story about the woman caught in adultery, let him, without the first, uh, sin, you know, let him without sin be the first to cast the stone. And then Jesus tells this woman caught in adultery, you know, is it, where is everybody? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. This incredible story of the forgiveness of Jesus was not in the earliest manuscripts of John. And so what most scholars believe is this is a true eyewitness testimony. It's part of the quilt that John hadn't put into his gospel. And so some later scribe was like, we need to make sure this story continues. It's an incredible story of the forgiveness of Jesus. That doesn't contrast. It's not that we wouldn't know the forgiveness of Jesus without this story. And so it gets, it gets inserted. Uh, Matthew 6, the end of the Lord's Prayer, that just ends with deliver us from evil. Later manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is pulled from another prayer in the Hebrew Scriptures that was added in most churches' use of the Lord's Prayer. It's just added as a way of going, look, that, that we're trying to bring this together to help people to bring kind of an accumulation of what's going on. Another example of the longer endings, and again, there's not, you know, seven more that I'm keeping out. This is, this is it. These are the longer insertions that you can find. And, um, and what you have is, is the last one being uh, Mark, 9, Mark 16, what we're looking at today, this, this, this added ending, which we're going to spend some more time on in a moment. 
So here's all this to say. In the midst of all that 1% that you get worried about, there is no load-bearing verses in any of that. There's no like Christology and like what we believe about Jesus' identity. The resurrection isn't a textual variant. His divinity and him being God isn't a textual variant. There's no like sins that are getting added as a text like, you know, by the way, and this is a sin, you know. That's, none of that is represented in textual variants. In fact, most of the textual variants, um, the places that are the most consistent are the ones that are making those sorts of claims, it's almost like the scribes and copyists is, is okay with doing little insertions or maybe word order stuff. When they came down to like the really important things, that's where they really honed in and were like very closely, you know, making sure they got word for word there. So there's no load-bearing theology here. Now, like I said, all of this, that 99%, the quality, the quantity of over 6,000, over 24,000, the proximity of these manuscripts is unlike any other literary work in human history. If you've ever read Plato... Not, the, not like my daughter's like, oh, Plato? Not that one. Uh, but the philosopher Plato. Uh, we have seven manuscripts of the writings of Plato. We have 49 of Aristotle. Homer was a little more popular. We have 643 compared to 6,000. Similarly, the manuscripts that separate those seven of Aristotle, 49, or seven for Plato, 49 for Aristotle, 643 for Homer, are not separated by years or even alongside one another. They're separated in some cases by a thousand years. And similarly, the variance between those texts vary so much that they don't even count them. There's no like 50%, 60, 70, they don't even count because they're just so all over the place. And that's why you're, if you were to go and buy like the works of Plato and to read through that, you're getting most translators kind of just smashing stuff together and, and like this seems like what he's saying. And the New Testament stands with a 99% accuracy rate with a manuscript base that leaves everybody else in the dust. It's just, you, I, you, this stuff keeps me up at night. It's, it's astounding. But you aren't reading it in Greek today, so that's the final stage is translation. The third stage is translation. Where over generations, scholars work with that giant manuscript base to translate it into the modern language. This can be motivated by a word-for-word -word intent, like our ESV that you're reading from today, or the NASAB. This can also be more of a thought-for-thought -thought leaning, which would be something more like the NIV, if you've ever read from that. And so what happens is there you have these groups of diverse international scholars who then work and pull together and deliver a faithful and not, but not perfect translation. Why I say not perfect is there's no such thing as perfect translation. No, no language has immediately one for one in their translation process, which is why I recommend on a regular basis when you're reading and studying a text, have one Bible translation you really like and stick in, but have another two or three that you kind of pull from, in, and with your Bible app, that's like so easy to do nowadays. You're just like reading something, hmm, okay, flip over to the NIV, just kind of look at maybe the word uh, choice of putting that into English there. And so you have available to you a wealth of translations that as you consider those, you're getting different elements from these, these scholars that you can actually get a really good, this is how you can get a good basis of what it was saying in Greek without knowing Greek. You're welcome. And so you have that happening, 99% consistency within those manuscripts. And when those variants appear, you get brackets like what we just read right now. Or you get footnotes like we've seen throughout. There you can even find um, Bibles. This is um, my Greek New Testament. Once again, you don't need to buy this. Um, but you can literally have Bibles, and they have an English version of this. But whereas you're reading through, you have a lot more footnotes than an English translation was that shows you every single manuscript and how they differ in their variants. 
and you can see word order, you can see spelling differences, you can see everything. With, like, there's no hidden conspiracy about the New Testament here. There's no Constantinian, they all got together and chose what the Bible, like figured out what the Bible was gonna be. It's very, like, it's all kind of an open book before you. You can see the differences there. It's not, nobody's hiding anything. And there you go. <laughs> That's how you got this book as it stands before you today. You have this original autograph, this transmission with manuscripts that's unlike anything else in human history, and then you have faithful scholars translating it into English as you have it there before you today. No hidden stories. It's, it's complex, right? It's a little heady, a little brainy, kind of boring maybe even. Uh, really, really interesting if you're a big nerd like me. But this is, there's no just history, textual criticism, same thing that we do with Plato or anything else. We just have a wealth of resources behind us. And there's a fundamental claim that this book is making, unlike Homer's Odyssey or anything else. Now, why this is important for those of us here is the reliability of Mark and the New Testament is that when we come across bracketed texts where it says something like not in the earliest uh, manuscripts, is that that should actually bolster and, and strengthen our trust in the New Testament in this Bible rather than weaken it. Once we know the full story of what's going on here. And this is why it's both heartbreaking and so <laughs> frustrating for me to see people who either reject Christianity altogether or deconstruct away from it based off questions of the reliability of the Bible. This is often because of um, Da Vinci Code stuff that we've picked up on or History Channel shows with this whole thing about how you can't trust the Bible right in between episodes of The Monster Quest and UFO Files and Mermaid Hunters just maybe we should be renaming the History Channel. Even more than that, with like the, the prominence of like YouTube influencers and these kind of public deconstruction stories, that time and again, it's the reliability of these texts that, that people bring up. If you've ever watched um, The Good Mythical Morning and Rhett and Link, um, like Will It Taco, and they're eating like bug tacos and stuff like that. No? That's just me. Cool. All right. I'm a big weirdo. Um, no, but Rhett and, Rhett and Link both um, identified as Christians for a good, good portion of their life, and uh, they've recently been telling their story of their deconstruction. And so Rhett, on his Twitter uh, this week, went on this whole kind of, like, you know, Twitter thread, working through, I'm talking about, what, what am I living in, the future that we just, like, talking about people's tweets? Anyway, Rhett goes on this whole kind of thing where he's, in his process of deconstructing from the faith, it was for him the fact that he can't take seriously any of the New Testament um, um, offerings on, on the claims of Jesus, that the divinity of Jesus, resurrection, this whole story was a later addition to the Christian faith added on over the centuries. And, and Rhett, as much as I love watching him eat these nasty foods and, and love reflecting on hearing his story, that's just historically not true. You have to deal with the fact that these manuscripts began in a very early stage to be claiming something about the personal work of Jesus. It was not a later edition. And so it's frustrating to watch people deconstruct or reject the faith because even the most skeptical atheist scholars agree based off the New Testament manuscript base and the other writings from outside of the Bible around the time of the Bible, that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person. That he was a messianic figure by the name Jesus who was understood and known as the Christ. He was known as teaching. He was known for his prophetic works and he was known for healing. He was known for whether or not he, was, he did any of that. That's who he was known as. And that towards the end, beginning of the turn of the century that he was crucified on a Roman cross with the religious um, leadership and the Roman, emperor, um, uh, Roman governors coming together. His, you can't deny that, historically. 
The other thing you cannot historically deny is that in the years following his death, there was an explosion unlike any other system within a religious basis since or before where all of a sudden you had a bunch of violently monotheistic Jews worshiping a human alongside or within the identity of God and a bunch of Roman Gentiles that were all rejecting the whole Roman pantheon and worshiping this Jesus guy. And that this group of people that never got together were all worshiping together this Jesus guy. So you have this Jesus story ending with his death, potentially, and within the decades following, all of these people worshiping this Jesus guy and uniting around him and, 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 and in a way that they had never seen before and, and ultimately over the course of a couple of uh, generations would turn over Rome entirely. That's history. The whole question is, what is in the middle of those two things? What kicks off that sort of ch change within Jew and Gentile relationships, within the Jewish faith and the Gentile religious system where they're rejecting Caesar what would happen, like we read last week, all of our earliest historical manuscripts are archaeological historical evidence that comes to us from the people who claim to be eyewitnesses to that moment, say that Jesus got up from the dead, 40 days later he ascended into heaven. And they claim this not only for themselves, but that five others, 500 others were there witnessing them over him over the course of these days. So the majority of, of atheist scholars agree of the before and the after, the question is, what happened at the middle there? And so if, if you don't believe that the resurrection is true, how am I doing on time? Okay, cool, we're going to do this. If you don't believe this is true, post, the week after Easter, I just want to set this before you. You're reading the Bible. This is great, but the resurrection's nonsense. That's not the world that we live in like last week. If you agree with most atheist, skeptical, most historian scholars, Jesus was a historical person, his teachings, his life, his crucifixion, in the years to follow, this explosion of followers and that was unlike anything the world has ever seen. Here are your options of what happened in between that space. The first is what's referred to as the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, he passed out. This is the common teachings of the Islamic faith regarding the death of Jesus. Jesus didn't actually die, he passed out. Blah. Even though eyewitnesses tell us, and we know about what Roman centurions did with crucifixion, is they would always um, pierce the heart of the one crucified to ensure that they were actually dead. So whatever, this centurion didn't go deep enough on this one day, even though this is like a Roman guard who his whole job is, like, that's his job. He's the heart pokey guy. And this is the one day he didn't go deep enough. And so even though he's still very, very close, he's bleeding out, he's been pinned and crucified, he then gets wrapped in over 100 pounds of linen and thrown into a cold tomb, cut off from air circulation without any medical assistance, three days later wiggles himself out of over 100 pounds, walks miles and miles, rolls away the stone, fights off the Roman centurion, and then goes around to his disciples who seem to think Jesus not only looks great, he looks better than any time they've ever seen him before. So the swoon theory, if that's what you hold, Christian faith would just kind of go, you're not, you're not doing good history. There's variables here that we need to, we need to look at. The Gnostic uh, heresy and false teaching back in the day said that Jesus didn't actually die. It was his twin brother. It's my favorite. Or the lookalike that Jesus, you know, it was like Jesus and like Greg. And for like 30 years, he was like, Greg, hide. Don't let anybody see you, you know. And then like the day comes for his death. He's like, Greg, you're up, dude. Like, come on to the ministry, man. Um, and so Greg or this, this twin brother gets crucified in place of Jesus. And so, you know, Greg's dead. And then, you know, three days later, Jesus is like, what's up, y'all? Like, the problem being this is the, who, who were some of the most fundamentally loudest and biggest leaders within the early church? It was Jesus' family members. It was his mom. 
You don't think mom, who she claimed to be a witness to the cross, was like, wait a minute, <laughs> like, that's not Jesus, you know, Jesus, where are you? Like, and nonetheless, that at any point, the whole point of why they had a Roman guard guarding the tomb was that if anybody made resurrection claims, they could throw the body out in front of everybody. No resurrection, he's right here. So the Gnostic twin brother theory. Um, uh, the common teaching of, of what Jews would say about the resurrection in the Jewish faith was that Jesus' body was stolen, maybe not by the disciples, but somebody stole the Bible, or stole the Bible, somebody stole the body, the corpse of Jesus. And so the, the women really did come to the tomb and they didn't find the body, but then these later additions of them talking to him and seeing him were kind of the, you just kind of added on. The secular belief, this is what most religious scholars hold to, uh, not, not religious, but most skeptical scholars would hold to today, atheist scholars, is that the disciples stole the body. The disciples came in, they were in cahoots, and they stole the body, and then they start rolling around making claims that Jesus had risen from the dead when he, in fact, hadn't. Now, not only does this, we have difficulty with this of the way that the Roman centurion, we are told, was guarding the body. Um, that these, these, you know, Roman, these guys fought them off. We also know, based off the gospel's witnesses, what, what would we, we be assuming based off how the Garden of Gethsemane went? What would those disciples be doing post-Jesus' death? It's done. They're hiding. That was fun while it lasted, but the Messianic movement's over. They're not looking for a chance to restart it. And similarly, throughout history, there were a lot of Messianic movements that the Messiah figure would die, and then they didn't start going around saying, oh, he's resurrected, or we're going to keep his vision alive. It would go on to a sibling or a son of that Messianic figure. They'd get behind that guy now. All right, woohoo! this is the new one. So why, not, why didn't Peter? Peter's the sword-swinging guy. He's the guy that did what Jesus should have probably done, right, if we're going for a Messianic vision. Why didn't they back him Within that, even more than that, why did all of the disciples, except for one, those original apostles, why were they? They were all murdered, martyred. They were all cur- killed for their faith, died for it. And even the one who got off, you know, with his life was still like, you know, tarred um, and, and exiled for years on end. And so, one uh, person who became a Christian was uh, one of the the twelve men who were in the room around the Watergate scandal. If none of us remember it, but we remember reading about it in history. It's here you have some of the 12 most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for, like, what was it, a few weeks? And one of the guys that was in that room, he ends up, you know, going to prison and all this, but he said this was what clicked off the resurrection story for him, where he believes the disciples couldn't. He goes, 12 of the most powerful men in the world couldn't keep a secret for weeks, couldn't keep a lie for weeks. And you mean to tell me that not only these guys kept it for their whole life, but they died for it? He's like, I, it was, it was a turning point for him. And then the final one is the Jesus Seminar, which is a group of, um, uh, uh, where Rhett and Link, some of those guys, we kind of lean into this kind of new vision of Jesus was a historical person, but there's a separation between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith. Those aren't the same person. Um, and so what they would say is that what all of these disciples and these 500 people experienced after Jesus' resurrection was this mass hallucination. This kind of like spiritual like, ooh, where, you know, in the morning in the loss of Jesus, they all hallucinated the exact same thing at the exact same time. And not just one person, but 500 in some cases, more than 500 people. Everything about psychosis and the way the brain works, that's physically impossible. Brains don't do That would be a greater miracle than the resurrection. People all hallucinating, their, their synapses all firing the exact same way at the exact same time and even touching him. And even more than that, if it was a mass hallucination and they were saying there was a resurrection, the Roman emperor and the Jewish leaders at any time could have rolled away the stone and brought the body out. See, guys, it was all a nice dream, but it wasn't true. So that was a big tangent, but those are your options. If you don't believe that the New Testament witness of the resurrection is true, 
Maybe you say, yes, historical person, yes, the church and the Christianity thing, but I don't think it's the resurrection. Those are, those are throughout history. Those are the big five. Those are your options. He didn't really die. He passed out. His twin brother, Greg, was on the cross, not him. Uh, the body was stolen. The disciples stole the body and lied, or it was a mass hallucination. They are all problematic. And none of them have any historical basis. They are all late additions and interpretations to the story. So if you're looking for the most, most historical claim around the resurrection of Jesus or what, whether or not that really happened, the, one, the closest ones that we have right there at ground zero are the claims that he actually got up from the dead. Now, why is this important other than Ryan just geeks out about this stuff? This shows that the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts does not ensure faith. Just like history and science don't ensure people's receptivity to those things. This is why last week, I think there's far more going on in the angels' words to the women to both investigate, to see the empty tomb, and to experience, to see the risen Jesus. To both investigate the historical, the eyewitness claims of the gospel, and for them to personally experience the risen Jesus. Many other belief systems are based on, you know, purely the, the personal, subjective, the spiritual experiences of a person. Anybody can have those experiences with, you know, being out in the desert for long enough or eating enough or smoking enough of something. Similarly, there's a lot of ideologies in this world that are based off historical and objective study. The Christian faith emerges and says yes to both. Both investigating the historical claims of the empty tomb and the story of, of all of this boring but kind of exciting stuff about manuscript transmission, but also ex personally experiencing the risen Jesus, both historical and personal. Because faith doesn't come purely through investigating the empty tomb, nor does it seem that Easter faith, mature faith, is, is based purely solely on a personal experience. Mature faith seems to be a personal experience of the risen Jesus, that spiritual subjective in my heart of hearts, my, my something that's happening within me that, that's deeply in spirit, alive within me, and at the same time, that that whole experience can be assured as not being foolish or intellectual suicide as I look back to the reliable witness of the New Testament. And so Christians who have had this experience of both experiencing the resurrected Jesus and investigating the empty tomb, we then hold this book, not only Mark's gospel, but the rest of this, this book, as not only being a reliable witness to the story of Jesus, but, but also an authoritative divine word that along that process, the, the spirit of God himself has been not only adjoining these authors as they're writing and, and, and speaking through them, but then also miraculously part of this preservation process for us. And so we take this as, a, as an authority of our lives. And we do that because Jesus talked that way about the Old Testament. He talked that way about his words. And he talked that way about the writings of the apostles and the words of the apostles. So that's the course. The next two are much shorter. <laughs> so deep breath. There we go. That's how you got Mark. Whether on your phone. I mean, on your phone, there's a lot more details there about, like, technology and, uh, that I can't get into. We'll have somebody else come up and talk about that. But that's how you got Mark's gospel as it sits before you today. Autograph, manuscript, translation, and the main difference and, and the thing that you have to ask and look in for yourself is, are these claims, these 6,099% accuracy manuscripts and their testament to the resurrection, are they worthwhile? And if so, what does that mean? But we have two more questions that will go a little bit quicker. The, the next one is just to ask, if that's how we got Mark's gospel then, why this longer ending? Where did this, that come from? These verses 9 through 20 that weren't in the earliest manuscripts. How did these get here? 
And then we'll go back in a minute to then, okay, why did it end in verse 8 in the first place? So like I said a moment ago, in the construction and the transmission of these manuscripts, sometimes the copyists and the scribes, they would add sentences or phrases to help their later readers, right? Uh, their church audience. And as you, read the ver- the, as you read Mark's gospel, it seems like Mark's gospel needs some help. How does it end in verse 8? Trembling and astonishment seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. <laughs> Credits roll, right? And you're just kind of like sitting there in the theater like, you know, what just happened? If you ever saw, if you ever, everybody saw, but uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception a few years ago, the movie ends with what, right? The top, you know, the totem spinning. And you're waiting to see, is it going to wobble or is it going to fall over or is it going to keep spinning? And right as you reach the point where you're expecting it to fall or to keep spinning, cuts to black and the movie's over, right? And you're left there in the, in the theater going, what just happened, right? That verse eight, it seems to end that way. And so, it's kind of like this, whatever happened, this later ending is somebody kind of, you know, the top fell over or, you know, or the, 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 the top kept spinning. They're trying to help with a story that seems unfinished. And so Mark's gospel doesn't have any, any meetup with the resurrected Jesus like the other gospels. It doesn't have the ascension, no great commission. It's just this shocking and abrupt ending. And so based off our manuscript history and what we're able to study, sometime in the mid to late second century, this ending shows up, verses 9 through 20, and then there's an alternate ending that is just uh, verses 20, uh, or 19 and 20. Uh, you have these, these, these different little endings that get tacked on, adding in the second century. And, and we know that this is an original mark, not only because it doesn't show up for two centuries, but because the, literally the Greek, like the way the Greek is written in 9 through 20 is completely different than the rest of Mark's gospel. It's, just, it's clear this is a later writer and a different writer than Mark. And over the first two centuries, all the church fathers, these pastors in their letters and their writings, whenever they do treatments of Mark's gospel, they end at verse 8. It's like they assume that there's no 9 through 20 because there wasn't in their version of Mark. So where in the world does this come from? The best hint that we have is from an Armenian manuscript of Mark's gospel that's an early Armenian uh, manuscript, which has the bracketed ending like we do of verse 9 through 20, but instead of saying not in the earliest manuscripts, it has this really interesting line. It says, from the priest Ariston, like the priest or the pastor Ariston. And so it's, oh, maybe this is the author of this additional ending. Maybe this is who gave it to us. And so it seems like some later scribe in the second century, maybe this guy Ariston, wanted to help the abrupt ending of Mark. And so he compiled quilt pieces from these other gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke and John and the book of Acts and the other New Testament writings. And like the compilation, the quilt, he pulls those together of those other endings of the story and then where the story goes after the resurrection to try to pull it together to kind of help Mark's gospel end on not such an abrupt ending. David Garland in his giant thousand page book on the gospel of Mark, he has a whole table where he goes through every single line of verse 9 through 20 and shows a direct connection or correlation to some other writing in the New Testament. So, you know, the group go into all the world, and he's like, oh, yeah, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, right? Uh, You will speak in new tongues. Oh, this is Acts chapter 2. This is a reference to Pentecost. Everything in here, there's nothing necessarily being introduced as being like this, like, what's going on here? It's just him. He's trying to close out Mark's gospel by pulling from these other stories. Even that strange, like, you will handle snakes line, like, what in the world is going on there, comes to us from Acts 28. The Apostle Paul gets in a shipwreck. He's picking up some wood to get a fire going so they don't freeze to death. As he's picking up the wood, snake comes out, bites him. All the, the, the native kind of villagers on the island of Crete are like, this dude's dead. 
and then he doesn't die. And then he preaches the gospel and the whole island of Crete becomes Christians. And it was this early story of like, what in the world? This is a miracle, right? That whoever the scribe is, as he seems to think, take that as really important. And so he adds that. The one line that has no basis in the New Testament is the poison drinking line. So it's like, what is this scribe getting at? Where did this come from? Uh, most likely what this points to is, of all places, in the mid to late second century, right around the time that this adding was ended, there was a Christian by the name of Justice Barsabbas, who in the midst of persecution, they were trying to kill him because he wouldn't deny the resurrection and Jesus' lordship, forced him to drink poison. He didn't die. He goes on to preach the gospel. All these people become Christians, right? So here you have that this quotation of what this scribe is trying to do is trying to summarize the other gospels in the book of Acts, showing that the miraculous ministry of Jesus continues today, to which we would say yes and amen, right? Because we don't need Mark 9 through 20 to tell us that. We, we have all of these other books that are doing that. Can we say that picking up snakes and drinking poisons is probably not the norm for most Christians throughout history? And Pentecostals in like, you know, North Carolina and Kentucky, like, woo, swinging snakes around. Then maybe they're taking Ariston a little bit, you know. Yeah, maybe, yeah. And so on one level, we can, we can go, you know what, Ariston, whoever the scribe was, we see what you were doing here. This was a good and helpful work, even though, you know, maybe you got a little carried away and a little overly excited, you know, with the snakes and the poisons. But this is, it's not Mark. But because this has been part of the manuscript history over the past 2,000 years, it's in your Bibles. Once again, these translators, the way that you, there's no conspiracy here. Nobody's hiding anything. There's no like, you know, we've got like, you know, the real ending of Mark where he says, you know, that, you know, whatever is totally fine, you know, is like hidden away. And even, this isn't in the notes, but the, um, like these later like Gnostic gospels, you hear about the gospel of Thomas and all these things that like the church said no to. The church didn't say, the church never accepted them. They, they have, they are so fundamentally different than what you read within the gospels and they are so separated by hundreds of years that it makes no sense to claim that they were written by anyone who is actually an eyewitness. They, they're, they're not working with the quilt pieces. And so anyway, that's, that one's for free. There's no conspiracy here. Just good text. Okay, the question remains then. Okay, that's where the longer ending is coming from. Why did the original one at verse eight? And lucky for you, that's the final one and then we're gonna wrap up. Three theories of why Mark's gospel ends at verse eight. The first being an autograph mutilation. It's a really, I just left that in my notes because it's fun to say, autograph mutilation. The idea being that the original ending to Mark's gospel was lost. That it being written in like a papyrus, like a scroll, or in the, a codex, which is a fancy word for the book, which Christians invented. So if next time you hold a book, you're welcome. Uh, we made that because we really like reading books and carry them with us. So we invented the, the codex. Um, if not invented it, there's, there's debate within history of whether or not we invented it or we just very much popularized it. But regardless, you can thank us for books. And so anyway, whether the ending pages of the scroll or the last pages of the codex fell out, that, we, that the autograph was mutilated, later copyists, they couldn't have it. The next one is that it was an unfinished autograph that Mark, for some reason, never got around to finishing his gospel. The possibility and speculation, did he get sick? Was he in prison? Was he killed? And it just kind of like, you know, he's like, uh, you know, dies right as he's like in verse. They were trembling and he's like, I can't wait to finish. I've got this great ending. And he just kind of like falls over. Like, what happened here? Now, there's great scholars who believe in these, these, these two. Um, I'm not partial to these two because, the, again, the earliest manuscripts of Mark don't have these additional endings. If the page had fallen out of the codex or the, it had begun to even wear 
that those scribes, based off we know the attention that they gave to these, these documents, is that would have been, they would have immediately copied it. We would have had an, a longer ending showing up before the second century. And if Mark would have just like fallen over and the early church had acknowledged that it didn't get finished, again, we would have endings being added long before the second century. But the fact that it doesn't show up until the two centuries later, we can assume that those early Christians recognized the ending of verse 8 as being the authentic and intended what Mark, why Mark ended wanted to end that way. The, the fancy word is the literary intent. To go back to Christopher Nolan with the Inception movie, is Mark intended to leave the top spinning. He wanted it to cut to black. So the question is why? Why end on these women being terrified and running in fear and then the credits roll? If we think back through Mark's gospel, what we've been in for 45 weeks, we have found time and again fear and trembling, astonishment. These as being a, a, a continued theme and pattern, specifically for when people witness the power of Jesus. And though fear is never celebrated in Mark's gospel, it is always, and again, again and again at least, presented as the starting place for faith. Fear is always the fork in the road with discipleship where disciples are faced. Am I going to continue in my fear away from Jesus or will I in my fear press into Jesus and in doing so press into what, what is faith? And so it seems like Mark's gospel closes and you're left sitting in the theater wondering, what are they gonna do? Will they like the bleeding woman? Will they like Jairus? Will they like the disciples you know, in, in the water? Will they, will they continue in fear away from Jesus or will they pursue and find faith in the midst of their fear, which, you know, the other gospels in the book of Acts tell us is exactly what happened. But I think Mark does this for more than just, you know, literary effect. Time and again, all of these disciples throughout Mark's gospel have been this foil, this, this mirror for you to see yourself in. And I believe Mark ends this gospel so that you end with these women running in fear and with this tension, this fork in the road before them, and Mark ends his gospel with you thinking about them, but really thinking about you. In the midst of the resurrection, whether the, the eyewitness manuscript tradition or for these women physically seeing it, that there is a, a testament to the power of the resurrection of Jesus, something that means the world is, fun, like we talked about last week, fundamentally different. This changes everything, and that's a terrifying thought indeed. And so will I run in fear away from Jesus, or will I, in the midst of my fear, press into faith? And this is how Mark's gospel ends. What are you going to do about the empty tomb? And so as we wrap up, what we've looked at today is the past 45 weeks have not been in vain. Our study of the gospel of Mark and really with it moving into Ephesians next week and 1 Peter back in the day and the story of justice all the way through the Old Testament and into the New, that the reliability of the Bible is rooted in what we find, this quality, quantity, proximity of the manuscript tradition that's unlike anything else in history. And yeah, you don't need to be an, an expert in this, but when you're in, the, in your fear, you should be able to rest assured that, that, that this is not intellectual suicide to believe this thing. This is grounded in a, in a, in a, in a verifiable, in a, in a true way of seeing reality. And looking at that added ending, we looked at this scribe's later edition trying to clarify for the earliest readers that the story of Jesus is not done that it continues today through his church. This is exactly what we're going to be looking at in Ephesians. That this is not, oh, cool story, Jesus got it from the dead. The miraculous power and witness of Jesus, of his suffering and servant ministry, that continues now through his body, through his church, to which we would say yes and amen. And we're looking at that shorter ending, we saw that Mark's gospel ends with an invitation. 
there is a sense where fear is the right response to the resurrection and that it is the beginning to true discipleship if we press in, leaving us with this question of what will you do? And so 45 weeks later, what we've looked at over the past, you know, since Christmas of 2019, we have found the Gospel of Mark to be a reliable witness. And even in its messiness, in the manuscript story, we find a testament to its, its, its reliability, to its truthfulness. And we, even in that messiness of its manuscripts, we find that the reality that this story is not done. Since the second century at least, this story continues through its people today. And in that original ending, all of us have an invitation before us. What am I going to do about this? So let's pray, and then we'll move into a time of response.